Good afternoon. Today's Monday, the 7th of March, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border and our very own Katie Joe. Uh, so we'll get straight on here with Ukraine and uh, the government has announced another $100 million grant to the Ukrainian government. Uh, so what are they saying? Uh, the UK is allocating an additional $100 million, apparently we don't pay in pounds, uh, to the Ukrainian government budget to mitigate financial pressures created by Russia's unprovoked and illegal invasion. Uh, according to the UK government, this grant could be used to support public sector salaries, uh, allowing critical state functions to keep operating, as well as to support social safety nets and pensions for the Ukrainian people. Uh, and it's going to be provided through the World Bank. Uh, so this comes on top of the UK claiming to have trained 22,000 Ukrainian soldiers, supplying 2,000 anti-tank missiles, providing £100 million, this time for economic reform and energy independence, and providing £120 million on top of that for humanitarian aid, including £25 million of match funding for the Disasters Emergency Committee appeal. Uh, and that is on top of a guarantee of, of five, up to $500 million of multilateral development bank financing, and that will unlock further funding to support the Ukrainian economy. And on top of that, the UK is providing support for a World Bank multi-donor trust fund established this week uh, to support the Ukrainian government. So in order to talk all this stuff through, uh, Mr. Trudeau is in the UK today. Uh, so he's also uh, joining him is the uh, Prime Minister of the Netherlands. Uh, and this is to continue to champion the international response for Ukraine. And they're also going to visit an RAF base to meet members of the UK Armed Forces. Uh, so the three Prime Ministers are going to have separate bilateral meetings and a joint trilateral meeting. And there'll also be a joint press conference later on in the Downing Street briefing room. So, uh, you know, what could possibly uh, go wrong there? Well, they could create, they could stoke a war up so that it gets out of hand, Mike. And of course, we shouldn't uh, we should also remember the manoeuvring in the background to supply aircraft to Poland in order for the Polish to release aircraft for the use of the uh, Ukrainians. So the the uh, deals going on amongst the armaments industry, truly astonishing. Um, so they rolled out uh, the, the chief of the defence staff yesterday, uh, Sir Tony Radican. And uh, well, let's have a listen to what he had to say on the BBC. We've seen images over the last few days of this extraordinary convoy, satellite images, 40 miles long, this convoy. And there are pictures there. It's north of Kyiv. And yet it seems to have stalled. Is that because of logistical problems? Is that because of low morale? How much do we really know about what is going on there? So we don't have a complete picture, but we, we do know about a series of factors. So one is... Russia hasn't operated at this scale since the Second World War. And to do what's called combined arms manoeuvre is incredibly complex and incredibly difficult. And we're seeing Ru Russia failing to do that in a competent fashion. So they were, they were held up north of Kyiv and the forces started to become dislocated. Then you've seen the, the failure of Russia with just some basics in terms of the maintenance of its kit and their kit has been failing. And then at the same time, Russia has been attacked by Ukrainian armed forces. And then their rear echelon, some of their logistics have been attacked. And now you're seeing that whole convoy stuck. It continues to be attacked. And that is impacting on morale. There are stories of the troops in those vehicles. Uh, they don't want to stay in those vehicles, so they're camping out in the forest. 
They're stuck there, and Russia has got itself into a mess, not just with that convoy, but in the whole of Ukraine, and we need to keep applying the pressure on Russia. But those stories of morale, you say, you call them stories, do we know that that is true or not? We absolutely do. So we know that there are some, some of the battalion ta uh, tactical groups, those that have been leading the fight for Russia, have suffered terrible losses. We know that Russia acknowledges it's lost nearly 500 people. If you, to put that into context, that's nearly 500 soldiers in one week, and that is more than the UK lost in Afghanistan over 20 years. Ukraine claims nearly 10,000 casualties. We don't know if that is true, but we do know that some of the, the lead elements of Russian forces have been decimated by the Ukrainian response. Now, I'm going to ask David for comment in a second, but what, do you, what were your thoughts on that? Well, I just think this man is a, is a disgrace. Uh, he's, talking, he's talking there about the Russians. He brings in incompetence. He talk, talk, talks about the, um, their inability to get kit in the field. This is the man who has had a Navy unable to get its Type 45 uh, destroyers to sea because the engines don't work or, or the sea is too warm. This man is not qualified to be in front of the public talking about the ground war in, uh, in Ukraine. I, I, I'm lost for words, Mike, yes. really, because he is so bad. He is so bad. David. Well, the, the, the Western narrative is it's all going wrong for Putin. And the problem here is that he is failing. Right Now, the alternative narrative, the Russian narrative, is that the operation is limited in extent and it is targeted so as to not to be a mass assault on the infrastructure of the country or on the civilians, but on certain military units. Now, if that was the case, we would see um, a reluctance to go into major cities. We would see a reluctance to get involved in major, in major firefights. So I, I think there's certainly an element where the Russian narrative is, is coherent. Um, I think there is certainly been stiffer resistance than was the case at, say, the Crimea, and that the, the armed forces of the Ukraine are much more competent and capable than they were perhaps five years ago. There's been a lot of training going in to make that the case. Um, but I think this narrative uh, is massively overstating the problems that the Russians are facing, uh, real those, though those problems inevitably are. Um, OK, so let's uh, bring Boris Johnson on the screen then. Um, and uh, well, he has written an article and uh, the article was so popular that nobody picked it up. But anyway, let's uh, at least in the mainstream press that I that I saw. So but let's have a look at a couple of the comments he made. Uh, Never in my life have I seen an international crisis where the dividing line between right and wrong has been so stark as the Russian war machine unleashes its fury on a proud democracy. Yes. Uh, yes. It's, it's sickening. Yeah. This is sickening stuff. Uh, so Russia's reckless attack on the nuclear power plant reminds us just how grave the stakes are for everyone. And my question is, uh, was there an attack on the nuclear power plant? Who, if there was any uh, shelling going on, who was carrying that out? Because if we look back uh, to last week, this is the 1st of March, and this is the International Atomic Energy Agency who monitors these things, uh, said on the 1st of March, that earlier this week, uh, the Ukraine's foreign ministry informed the IAEA that Russian military forces were advancing close to the largest of the sites uh, in eastern Ukraine. 
As the agency reported on the 20th of February, additional information received on that day from the operator confirmed that Russian forces were near the site but had not entered it. The following day then, they said this, Russia has informed the IAEA that its military forces have taken control of the territory around the nuclear power plant, uh, according to uh, Director General Grossi. Uh, and, uh, and then that was followed two days later with the first reports, and I've just chosen NPR as an example here, claiming that Russian forces had attacked and seized uh, Europe's largest uh, nuclear power plant. Now, uh, in fact, uh, what seems to have happened, and of course, it's, it's really difficult to uh, tell exactly what has happened because the reporting is uh, not so great at the moment. But what seems to have happened is that the Russians have effectively walked into that nuclear power plant and taken over it uh, and, uh, you know, placed their military around it and then have been in turn attacked by the Ukrainian uh, army, uh, who in the process set fire to the training center, uh, as Patrick was reporting on Friday. So, David, I think uh, one of the points that I really want to make here is that uh, at this point, it is still it's still really difficult to confirm anything about what's actually going on on the ground. Yes, confusion reigns, uncertainty reigns, and uh, uh, honest reporting that's reliable is uh, vanishingly rare. Yes, and I, I just want to add to that, of course, that uh, if we did know everything that was going on on the ground, of course, the Russian plans would be completely useless as military plans. So. <laughs> Um, what this is telling me is that the West has been completely outfoxed again by what Russia is actually doing here. And this is why we're getting such poor reporting in the Western media, because nobody really understands what's being done in Ukraine. Well, I'm going to uh, come on to uh, Russia, uh, Britain's uh, military intelligence uh, coverage of this in a second for a little bit more on that. But before we get to that, David, uh, Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown is uh, trying to kill satire. He's doing quite well. He's also trying to illustrate just how negative an influence and malign an influence he actually is. And he's doing rather well at that as well. He's calling for a tribunal modelled on Nuremberg to prosecute possible Russian war crimes. So he's suggesting to Putin that if he pulls back, we will hang him. Uh, so that's going to um, pour oil on troubled waters. Um, let's uh, look at specifically what he said. Um, he said, Ukraine wants a full support to expose and punish the crime of aggression. And that can be done by setting up a special tribunal on the lines proposed in 1942. That's the Nuremberg trials. That's what he's after. And that will, of course, only fuel uh, further uh, violence. Um, now, let's uh, come on to this then from uh, RT last week. I was going to cover this on Friday, but we ran out of time. Russia cancels space launch with OneWeb satellites. Um, and basically, uh, Russia. it says in the first paragraph, Russia has canceled the scheduled Friday launch uh, of the Soyuz uh, rocket uh, after the London headquartered company OneWeb... Uh, uh, um, the, sorry, the, the owner of the project. Yes, the owner of the payload, the payload refused sorry. to promote uh, to to provide additional legal guarantees uh, that its satellites would not be used for military purposes. Now, OneWeb, of course, can't uh, give official guarantees that its satellites won't be used for military purposes. We're going to explain why. Uh, here is OneWeb, uh, and this was uh, a couple of years ago. OneWeb successfully emerges from Chapter Eleven. This satellite company. Uh, was setting itself up in a sort of competition with Elon Musk and uh, Starlink 
And the idea is that they want to set, uh, install or, or launch uh, hundreds of uh, low Earth orbit satellites in order to provide internet connections to uh, countryside areas and so on. Um, but uh, the British government bought this company and that's why it was able to emerge from chapter 11. Um, so why did they buy it? Because of course the British government is wanting to uh, pursue uh, Sky, a replacement for Skynet. Uh, we're currently got Skynet 5 in the skies at the moment. They, Skynet 6A is one of the next generation Skynet products. It's gonna be uh, launched or produced by Airbus. Um, and, uh, but here's the thing. Uh, this is what Alex Sharma said uh, a couple of uh, years ago about this. Access to our own global fleet of satellites has the potential to connect people worldwide, providing fast UK-backed broadband from the Shetlands to the Sahara and from pole to pole. So he is very much suggesting that this is for, you know, uh, civilian commercial purposes as providing internet. Uh, but of course, what we know is uh, that uh, from Ben Wallace, we will ensure that we embed dual use at the heart of our capability management processes, uh, considering how we can share defense space capabilities and outputs. Uh, and in fact, this goes for the 5G networks as well. Uh, at the center of uh, the UK's in, um, you know, interoperability uh, policy, this new defense policy that they have, uh, they are dual using everything. So the 5G networks will be dual use. The satellite networks will be dual use, and that's why OneWeb was not able to uh, make any commitment to the Russian government that uh, their satellites would not be used for military purposes, and therefore that's why the Russians decided that they would not launch them. Uh, I think in parallel, OneWeb uh, also were encouraged not to bother uh, using satellite launch technology, any, uh, the Russian satellite uh, launch capability anyway, but you know, this is the point, dual use. Yeah. Yes. Okay, now let's uh, have a look at the uh, defense intelligence briefings that have just come out in the last couple of days. Um, this is the current map, Russian attacks and troop locations. Um, you can take that with uh, whatever pinch of salt you like, but I just wanted to look at mainly the, the text that goes along with this. So this is beginning on uh, late Friday. Uh, intelligence update, R Russia continues to reinforce its tight control over its domestic media. President Putin approved changes to Russian law on Friday, making spreading fake information about the conflict in Ukraine, punishable with fines and prison sentences of up to 15 years. Uh, these steps likely reveal the extent of Russia's concern over how the conflict in Ukraine has unfolded and its desire to hide from the this from the Russian population. So likely, possibly, uh, and then it goes on, President Putin has today been forced to deny reports that martial law is due to be imposed uh, to enable further censorship in Russia and a crackdown on dissent. So he's been forced to deny those reports uh, let's have a look on the 6th of March. The scale and strength of Ukrainian resistance continues to surprise Russia. David's uh, hinted a little bit of, on, on what we think about that earlier on. Uh, it has responded by targeting populated areas in multiple locations. Uh, this is likely to represent an effort to break Ukrainian morale. Russia has previously used similar tactics in Chechnya, employing both air and ground-based munitions. Russia's supply lines reportedly continue to be targeted, slowing the rate of advance of the ground forces there's a realistic possibility uh, that Russia is now attempting to conceal fuel trucks as regular support trucks to minimize losses. Uh, and then they go on on the sixth, uh, for the second day in a row, a ceasefire agreement to enable evacuation uh, from uh, Mariupol has failed. A ceasefire was scheduled and so on. Uh, Russian artillery strikes in the city have likely remained at the high level seen in recent days. So they don't actually know. Uh, as with yesterday, Russia has accused Ukraine of breaking the ceasefire. 
Um, this is probably an, ad an additional attempt to diminish responsibility for civilian casualties. Uh, and then on, uh, also on the 6th, uh, Russian forces probably made uh, minimal ground advances, again, probably over the weekend. It's highly unlikely that Russia has successfully achieved its planned objectives to date. Uh, over the past 24 hours, a high level of Russian air and artillery strikes have continued to hit military and civilian sites in Ukrainian cities. Recent strikes have targeted, uh, well, the cities listed there and uh, been particularly heavy in Mariupol. Uh, and then this morning, uh, Russia is probably targeting Ukraine's communications infrastructure in order to reduce Ukraine's citizens' access to reliable news and information. Russia reportedly struck a TV tower and Ukrainian internet access is also highly likely being disrupted as a result of collateral damage from Russian strikes on infrastructure. Now, I appreciate this is defense intelligence uh, information, Brian, but the likelies and probabilities and possibilities and maybes are incredible. But uh, th this is being pushed out on the number 10 Downing Street Twitter feed yeah. as it's, fact. It's propaganda, it's, Mike, it's, is, right? is what it is. It's the, yes, propaganda. And, and the mainstream press is going to be picking that up and running with it. And they put further spin on it and they make guesses and assumptions based on what defence intelligence is put out. And the result is that the UK public are completely misled about what the situation is. So this is massive propaganda by UK. We're seeing it in other Western nations, but at the moment, UK seems to have the lead. And of course, we've got BBC media action embedded in Ukraine, helping to control the Ukrainian media. Yes. Uh, OK, so David, um, the question is, how are we going to fund uh, the, our defence in the UK in the, uh, well, or whatever it is in the coming days and months? Uh, do we need tax rises? Well, first of all, are we talking about? We're talking about a complete, uh, a complete change, a shift. Um, uh, uh, <clears throat> a secular change in the entire dynamics of defence spending. Uh, so we see here Roger Bootle in the Telegraph <clears throat> said we don't need tax hikes to fund the army, let's make cuts elsewhere. So that's your social programmes. Um, and he's saying we may have to raise defence spending to 4% of GDP. So he's talking about doubling defence spending in the UK in response to this. And he's talking about this being uh, <clears throat> a a watershed moment of the type um, that sits alongside the breakdown of Bretton Woods uh, fixed exchange rate system in 1971 when we came off the last remnants of the gold standard. Now, 4% of GDP, to put that into context, uh, we have uh, a, a graph here that shows historic GDP, um, military spending in the UK defence budget as a percentage of GDP. If you go back to 1960, it was 6%. If you come back to around about the time of the Falklands War, it's about 45 to 5%. And then we have the peace dividend where it drops to 2%. So be very clear that the peace dividend is now over. We're back in a war footing, um, and that is now a secular shift that is going to remain for the foreseeable future. Uh, and that uh, leaves the defence and, and military infrastructure absolutely rubbing their hands with glee. Oh, they're doing nicely, yes, absolutely. Okay, so let's uh, welcome Kitty Joe onto the programme then. And uh, we've been talking over the last few days, Kitty Joe, about uh, the culture wars against, uh, against Russia at the moment. And, uh, well, it's now got into the dance world. It has indeed, thank you. Um, yeah, as we're seeing across the world, everything Russian is being boycotted, isn't it? 
the Paralympics uh, banned Russian and Belarus athletes um, last Thursday, just days after saying they could still compete as neutrals. The EBU has announced that no Russian act will be allowed to participate in the Eurovision Song Contest and theatres across the UK now are cancelling ballet companies and touring productions. Um, yeah, I have a slide there. That's uh, the Classic FM uh, has posted an article which explains the Royal Opera House has cancelled the Bolshoi Ballet. The Helix Theatre in Dublin has cancelled Swan Lake by the Royal Moscow Ballet. The Bristol Hippodrome, the Edinburgh Playhouse, the Wolverhampton Grand Theatre, the New Peterborough, the Royal Derogate in Northampton have all cancelled touring productions from the Russian State Ballet of Siberia. The company has been touring Ireland annually for over 10 years and the dancers represent various nationalities. The Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Uzbek, Japanese, Irish and Polish cast and crew have travelled the world with each other for a number of years. The statement continued, we hope this helps to clarify the diversity of our ballet company and that we don't carry any political message on this tour. We simply dance for peace. The Royal Moscow Ballet, however, said in a statement after its performance in Dublin was cancelled that the ballet company is in no way funded or sponsored by the Russian government. So if other shows are still allowed to go ahead, I don't understand why these are not allowed to. Um, they are only just starting, as we've, as we've said before, as I've said before, all of these companies, they're literally clawing back as much money as they can now after you know two years of not being able to earn a penny. The, the, the theatre is in dire straits and these artists and production companies still need to make a living. I really don't understand why we're penalising them and I think it's incredibly unfair. Um, I don't know what you think, but I'm, I'm really upset about this and I feel heartbroken for the, for the performers and the production companies. Yeah, Katie Joe, my immediate response is because we're crushing culture in any and all forms. So this is an ideal opportunity for more culture to be completely squashed. But the other thing is, of course, we're seeing this mindset. It, it's mesmerism. It's mind control of the UK public. So everybody's got to jump on the bandwagon that the Russians are all bad, even if they're dancing on stage. Uh, which brings us, uh, David, to Jeremy Vine. Yes, um, <clears throat> mind control and the Russians are bad certainly does bring us to Jeremy Vine. Uh, we have a video. Uh, it's astonishing. And we'll say a few words after, it's, after we've played it. And I don't think they are the enemies. Quite a number of those Russians you probably find will go across and they, they were holding their hands up this morning, not wanting to fight showing the Ukrainians. Yeah, but if they I, were told lies by Putin, surprise, surprise. True, uh, but yeah, you know, um, the brutal reality, uh, Bill, 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 the brutal reality is if you put on a uniform for Putin and you go and fight his war, you probably deserve to die, don't you? Do you? Do kids deserve to die, 1820, called up, conscripted? That's life. Who don't understand it? That's the way I, it goes. Who don't I, grasp the issues? Yep. Now, <clears throat> I, I think that may be the worst thing I've ever heard on British television. Um, you deserve to die if you put on a uniform. That has never, that's, that's a war crime. That statement is a war crime. Is encouraging war crime. That is not the nature of, of conflict. That's the that's that's not the nature of um, any sort of uh, a concept of a just war or how you conduct yourself in war. Um, 
And then, well, that's just the way it is. Casual, well, you know, you're just going to have to die then. It's brutal, it's callous, uh, and it's it's full of hatred. Uh, David, I have noticed uh, in the last few weeks a, a shift in the type of journalism that we're seeing on broadcast media in the UK. And uh, something that we've seen over maybe over the last three, four years on, for example, Channel 4 News, where where Channel 4 News, uh, if they had somebody on representing the Syrian government, for example, uh, would be highly aggressive in their interviewing style, uh, not, not attempting to tease out uh, information from them, but actually you know, effectively being insulting to them, as insulting as they could possibly be. The BBC, uh, up until this point, has taken the, the moral high ground and attempted to... to maintain some kind of dignity with respect to, to the questioning that they even if they were openly anti the person they were they were interviewing but in the last few weeks I've seen the similar tactics uh, with respect to Russian representatives of the Russian government or or, or people that are viewed as being uh, Putin uh, friends um, and you know we have been uh, criticized in the last couple of weeks David for, for showing a lack of balance in some areas but frankly, the BBC has also gone off the rails here. All the mainstream media have also, including, you know, also by also, I mean, also Channel 4, have gone off the rails with this. And, and Jeremy Vine's representing that aggression, which has suddenly appeared. Yes, uh, I want to come back to this next time. We have more to say on this subject when we have a little more uh, time to discuss. Okay. Uh, but in the, me in the meantime, uh, I just want to revisit the the... Uh, the video you played on Friday uh, was Senator Lindsey Graham, um, which is perhaps the worst political statement uh, that I've heard in uh, living memory. How does this end? Somebody in Russia has to step up to the plate. Is there Brutus in Russia? Is there a more successful Colonel Stauffenberg in the <coughs> Russian military? The only way this ends, my friend, is for somebody in Russia to take this guy out. You would be doing your country a great service and the world a great service. Now, if, if that had been Putin or any of Putin's close associates, I'm sure they'd be called henchmen, saying that someone had to take out um, the um, President of the United States or the Prime Minister of Great Britain, right? he would be called for everything. It would be evidence of the brutality and lawlessness of the regime, of the illegitimacy of the, of the regime. And yet we see this coming from the West. The hypocrisy is breathtaking and we've lost all sense of the sort of values and virtue on which we built our, our society. It's it's manifestly gone. Yes, uh, absolutely agree with that, uh, David. So let's let's bring on screen some of our politicians and talk about how they're acting while this crisis goes on. We better start off with Boris. And I've come to a, a an article from the BBC uh, because there's two articles that tell us quite a lot about how things are being worked at the moment. But here's, here's the weapons and here's Boris clearly enjoying himself as he, uh, as he uh, shuffles along. Um, it's a lovely war for Boris and there is no doubt about this. So they're not really caring about the bloodshed in Ukraine because they want to get the weapons and the munitions in. Whatever else they're saying, what's happening in the background, we are now pumping in weapons 
into Ukraine, we are going to stoke up the bloodshed. And as we've heard from Jeremy Vine, if Russians are dying, that doesn't matter. But what does the BBC help us to understand? This is about regime change. Um, so the BBC are inside Ukraine. They've got their change agent charity, BBC Media Action. They're already stoking the fire. They've been doing it for years. Now we've got it to a state where the violence has started. So this is truly a lovely war for Boris. And if you think about what it's achieved so far, he's gone from Buffoon to Churchill. He's been called Churchill by some people, as you commented on last week, Mike. Uh, we've got a lockdown cull of the elderly during COVID-19. That's all forgotten. The killing off of thousands and thousands of elderly people in UK, that's all buried. Vaccine injuries and deaths, that's been buried by this lovely war in Ukraine. Financial and economic meltdown in UK, that's all been buried. Well, it's the fault of the Russians. COVID-19 Partygate, well, that's just a fond memory for Boris because while he was mocking the British people and partying while he'd got everybody locked up, that is also buried. And of course, we've now got soaring energy prices, which is going to help hurt everybody. But of course, the elderly and the vulnerable are going to suffer with those energy prices. The, the backlash for Boris is all buried as well, because that's going to be blamed on Putin. So when we get the, cue, the uh, cues from the BBC, this was uh, from a couple of days ago. The headline was Ukraine, how might the war end? Five scenarios. So very quickly, what was the BBC saying the scenarios were? Well, they said there could be a short war. Russia really ramped up its military operation, a full-scale invasion to crush Ukraine, and it's all over in a few days. I believe the Russians could have done that very, very easily, but that's not what they're doing. Well, the BBC isn't sure, so they got talking about a long war, and you can just see the BBC getting excited because this could develop into a protracted war. This could go on for months or even years, especially, of course, if the West pumps in the munitions and the arms to allow it to, to uh, escalate over time. So that's one and two. And where do they go next? Well, they said it could, of course, expand. It could become a European war. Most people would be horrified at the idea of that. But of course, the arms manufacturers and the bankers are going to be rubbing their hands with glee because the bigger the war, the bigger the profits. So uh, let's keep the pressure on Putin to see whether we can ramp up a European war. They did say there could be a diplomatic solution, but really this was all too difficult. And as they said in the paragraph on screen, the guns are talking now. So the path of dialogue is going to be difficult. That is why the West is pumping more guns in to make the dialogue for peace uh, even more difficult. It's pretty obvious to see. But this is where the BBC really tells us because it gets onto the subject of Putin being ousted. Uh, if the pressure is continued, uh, the quote here is that uh, it's now as likely uh, that there will be regime change in Moscow as in Kiev. So this is a truly lovely war. And the BBC gives a conclusion here. It says the scenarios are not mutually exclusive. Some of, of each could combine to produce different outcomes. Uh, but it goes on to this incredible statement. It says, and the liberal international rules-based order might just have discovered what it was for in the first place. 
So the BBC is way ahead. They know who's really driving this war. This is the, the liberal international rules-based order. This is the like of the World Economic Forum, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Boys, the financiers, the globalist bankers. The BBC has already got this uh, in the bag. So um, let's just look at this over time. We had Iraq. What was the agenda? Clearly, it was regime change. That was planned and completed. Libya was regime change. That was planned and completed. Syria didn't go so well. Regime change was planned, but it failed due to the success of the Russian operation. And uh, we've now got regime, cha uh, regime change planned for Russia. Uh, it's planned and it's in progress. But at the moment, of course, we're waiting to see what's uh, going to uh, come out of that. But what is the BBC doing? Well, the BBC is stoking up the violence. Uh, what does the BBC want? It wants to foment revolution in Russia. It wants to ramp up the body count because that's good for its viewing figures. And here they've already told us they're promoting one world government. So if we look at comments that have come in, in the BBC article from politicians, uh, they are all now saying that Boris Johnson is the best thing since sliced bread. Here's Keir Starmer. Look at the moment. The Prime Minister is obviously concentrating on the job in hand. We stand united as the United Kingdom on that issue. That's the best he could do. We had to drag in Rory Stewart. Well, we didn't. The BBC did. I think Boris is a terrible human being. I think he's a terrible Prime Minister. But I think he's done OK on the Ukraine crisis. This man has, has got trouble with reality, I think, uh, Mike. How do you justify those words? Incredible. Then we've got a lot of anonymous people because they're too scared to put their name to their comments. One said, I'm not nervous because of him. I'm nervous because of the situation. I was nervous during the pandemic about what he would do. So we seem to have a bit of a split personality from a cabinet member here because they were nervous about him. But suddenly when it's war, they're very confident in him. Uh, this one, the Ukraine crisis, massively strengthens him. It is events that set the mood. We've all seen campaign of Boris. So war deaths in Ukraine strengthen Boris. And what they really mean is they strengthen the Tory party, which was falling apart. But a good war is now helping the Tory party. It's his meteor, apparently, and anonymous uh, politicians have been saying, talking about a battle of international ideas rather than looking at spreadsheets or complicated domestic policy. This is unbelievable. So Boris is made for war and bloodshed. And as long as we've got plenty of that, then um, we're, in a good, we're in good hands. David, very quick little bit of comment, because I'd like to move on to a very interesting video clip. <clears throat> the 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 lack of coherence in all of this is striking. The, we'll we'll come to this a number of times, but we're seeing uh, utter contrast between the world of COVID and the world of Putin, um, and no one seems to have noticed. No one in government seems to have noticed the contradictions. It's quite bizarre. Yes, thank you for that. Well, let's let's bring in. Um, a politician, Mr. Bryant, uh, who was on video recently getting his knickers in a twist about Abramovich. Let's have a little look at this clip. I wonder whether she would condemn John Terry today. I don't know whether she's seen this, but he has posted today 
a photo of himself with Roman Abramovich, who is one of Putin's cronies. What will the people of Ukraine think of the former England football captain? So there's the man, there's the pious statement. Uh, let's go back a bit, uh, quite a few years to look at what The Independent was talking about. Here's the headline. The Sun made illegal payments to US servicemen to obtain the Saddam picture, says MP. This was 4th of December uh, 2012. Why are we interested? Well, at the time, Labour MP Chris Bryant told the House Commons uh, that the Sun newspaper paid a substantial sum for the picture of the Iraqi dictator in his underpants while he was an American prisoner of war. Uh, this is the very offensive uh, picture. The man was in captivity and uh, whoever released this picture, I think it's, it's an utter disgrace. Uh, but of course, let's remember the quality of the British politicians because at the same time, Chris Bryant was snapped in his underwear so let's just jump to Pink News, which uh, covered this uh, whole thing extremely well, because what is the headline? Chris Bryant accuses Russian officials of smears and of circulating underwear photo. So even when you're caught in your underwear, it's those nasty Russians. Sorry, am I wrong? Well, did Chris Bryant not circulate that image himself as part of uh, his... He took the image... Uh, how it was uh, circulated is still under question. I see. But let's finish the segment here because thanks to Pink News, uh, we, we know that Labour MP Chris Bryant claimed he's the victim of a homophobic smear campaign by the Russian embassy in London after a website published an old image of him wearing just his underwear. And uh, they then pointed out that the shadow immigration minister is also the chairman of the all-party parliamentary group for Russia. So the question that the public should be asking themselves, is this about nasty Russians or is this the Russians saying we don't want any of Chris Bryant's agenda, which I think is much closer to the truth? Yes. And uh, David, over to you, because uh, we've got some interesting uh, movements in Scotland uh, with uh, well, a, a certain logo. Well, we, we need to introduce a little of, of the lighter side to these very difficult situations. So we, for that, we rely on the Scottish government and Nicola Sturgeon, and she's not let us down. Uh, so here we see the BBC News saying, uh, briefing logo, Nicola Sturgeon, Sturgeon's briefing logo, similar to the Russian Navy flag is to be dropped, they say. Um, and uh, here we see uh, the Russian Navy flag. And indeed, that is exactly what Nicola Sturgeon has on the stand when she's briefing people about COVID. Um, but it's not just there. The BBC didn't really quite report this properly. No, this is the branding of the Scottish government. It's everywhere. This is the census. Scotland census, which is being circulated now, and we're being threatened that we must fill this in right now. There's some interesting questions. Maybe we'll come back to that another week. Um, Scotland census has the Russian naval flag on it. This is the branding of the entire Scottish government. It's going to have to go, I'm afraid. Um, and... Um, we've got here the reasons, and, and, and I know that Brian is very happy when I point this out. Uh, Samuel Samuel Craig, uh, sorry Samuel Gregg of Inverkeithing from Fife in Scotland. He was the admiral who basically founded the modern Russian navy and won several battles and set up a naval dynasty with his sons falling into the navy 
and a grandson ended up as Minister of Finance in Russia. Nearly 30 Russian Scots achieved flag ranks in the Russian Navy before the Imperial Navy was destroyed in 1917. And rather than pointing out that that means that the Russians are not the other and strange and different, but people with whom we have a long association, which is what Nicola Sturgeon should be doing, she's virtue signaling and pulling the logo uh, because of its uh, resemblance to the Russian naval flag. Uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, David, uh, that isn't the Scottish flag. So, but, you know, the Scottish flag is a, is a white cross, a white diagonal cross on a blue background. So why is the Scottish government changing it in this way? Uh, it's, it's an indication that the Scottish government isn't actually there to represent Scotland anymore. Well, we were debating this here and uh, we came up with the suggestion that perhaps it's because they're reversing Scottish values. So they reversed the flag as well. Yeah, okay. Okay, so if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to the new community website, which is community.ukcolumn.org, uh, and there are options for you to help us out there. Uh, if you would like to uh, share a material you find on the various platforms, uh, that would be fantastic as well. And if you would like to support us by picking up something at the shop, there's a new URL for that as well, is nice.shop.ukcolumn.org. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the individuals that have made some donations over the last few days. Um, very generous. And thank you very much for that. We will be in touch. Um, if we had managed to get ads on the programme on Friday, uh, we ran out of time. Uh, we would have mentioned this as well because Ian Davis obviously was with us on Friday, but I'll mention it now. Last year, uh, he said I was fortunate to speak to uh, Wolf Clan Media about my book, Pseudo-Pandemic, as part of the forthcoming documentary to premiere on richplanet.net tomorrow. So this was uh, on Friday he posted this. Uh, you can watch the interview there, and it's wolfclanmedia.org slash pseudo-pandemic. Um, so do have a look at that if you can. Uh, now, of course, there's only one day left if you want to uh, get your thoughts in on the uh, Human Rights Act reform. A Modern Bill of Rights. The URL is on screen at the moment. Now, a lot of people have been in contact to say that the form for this consultation is extremely complicated and they're finding it very, very difficult. I understand that completely. Um, well, this organization, the British Institute of Human Rights, has uh, uh, put up a template letter uh, for this because that's another way to get your thoughts uh, uh, understood for this consultation. So they have uh, produced a template letter and some very good advice on what you might do for this, uh, if anybody wants to to use that as an alternative approach. Is it any surprise that it is complicated and difficult to do, Mike? Uh, because... No, because of course they don't want uh, ordinary people giving their yeah. opinion. Um, now, uh, David, I just very briefly want to mention this. I mentioned this again on Wednesday, perhaps, uh, but this is uh, Finla Coffee, which uh, many people have uh, been aware of. We move on to COVID issues now. Uh, Finla Coffee loses appeal against lockdown breach conviction. Uh, said the Plymouth Herald on Friday. Uh, and so they're saying the judge favoured the council's argument that the court was not the place to decide whether it was bad law or not. It was the law regardless. So uh, Finla Coffey in July last year uh, and their owners, Deanna Yates and Michael Pendlebury, were found guilty in their absence after a short trial was held at Exeter Court some time ago. The charges uh, brought by Plymouth City Council accused them of failing, quotes, to close and cease selling food and drink. Uh, this was during the lockdown and that had failed without reasonable excuse to close premises or part of the premises at Finlay Restaurant, 12 to 13 St. Stephen's Place, Plimpton, Plymouth, in which food or drink were sold for consumption on those premises on November the 6th and 7th, 2020. 
Uh, in addition, cafe owners Deanna Yates and Michael Pendlebury, both from Plimpton, uh, were charged with, quote, being a person responsible for carrying out a restricted business or service carried on from or provided at premises of a kind specified in part one of the schedule on the health protection coronavirus restrictions, England number four regulations 2020, failed without reasonable excuse to cease providing food or drink for consumption on the premises at Finla Coffee on those dates. Um, so uh, they were uh, represented in court by Mark Horn, uh, and uh, he provided the court with a 44-page skeleton argument. Uh, he went on to posit, according to the uh, Plymouth Herald here, uh, through a number of explanations that the law on which Finlay Coffee, uh, Pendlebury and Yates had allegedly broken was in fact a bad law. Um, but the judge has decided that uh, it's not the court's uh, place to decide what a bad law is. And David, it just the first thing that came to my mind was, this is why people should be insisting on jury trials, because if the judge isn't going to do his job, uh, then it, it, uh, it really should be for the jury to make these decisions. The jury is the last defence we have in this country for liberty. We will not get that often from a paid government-employed judiciary. Um, we'll get it from ordinary people saying, no, this is wrong. Yes. And, and I mean, just briefly, what are your thoughts on the role of the courts in deciding whether a law is a bad law or not? Uh, absolutely. There's a thing called jury nullification. Uh, I'm not convinced that judges can do it. I am absolutely convinced that juries can do it. Juries can say that's, that's not a valid law uh, and strike it down. And uh, David, uh, just to bring in here, uh, because I know there are many people will be wondering what has happened, but uh, I'd hope to uh, bring in a short uh, audio clip um, speaking to David Noakes. I wasn't able to do that today, so I will do that on Wednesday. Uh, but uh, David Noakes has just suffered Napoleonic law in France. Uh, so he's been sentenced to five years, but they released him back to UK. So effectively, the next three years, he's going to be under license. Um, but uh, we will have, we've had a discussion with David Noakes about that. So uh, the beauty of our system in UK is, of course, that uh, until you're proven guilty, you're, you're innocent. And uh, the power of the jury is the one that makes the decision. But uh, something very different has been going on in France. OK, let's uh, go to Kitty Joe again. And, uh, and Canada, <coughs> excuse me, Canada, Kitty Joe. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, I would like to start on a positive note. So Saskatchewan. Alberta, Ontario, Prince Edward Island and Quebec are all lifting or have already lifted their COVID-19 restrictions and mandates. And in the first slide, um, Alberta lifted most of the COVID-19 restrictions on the 1st of March, including mandatory masking in the majority of public places. Uh, Premier Jason Kenney announced the decision to lift the mask mandate falls under step two of the province's plan to move away from public health measures. He said all signs here and across the world suggest the worst of COVID-19 is behind us. And in the second slide, we've got Premier Doug Ford. He said that vaccine passports will end on the 1st of March, but masking requirements will remain for now. He insisted the change was not due to the pressure from the anti-vax mandate prote uh, protesters. And the chief medical health officer, Dr. Kieran Moore, said the province's vaccine certificate system had served its purpose and was no longer needed. And in the CTV News, 
on the 4th of March. Um, they reported that Ontario was on track to lift the mask mandate by the end of March. The move by these provinces, however, is bringing mixed reactions and some are still going to keep the uh, restrictions in place. So there's Elizabeth uh, Vainio, the owner of a gym. So this is on the next slide. She is keeping the mask mandates and all customers and staff are to provide still proof of three COVID-19 vaccine doses. She blames the unvaccinated for the last lockdown. And she said she has a hard time inviting people in who basically bring that much harm to her and her staff. And the co-owner of the Bytown Cinema is going to continue to require proof of vaccination, saying it comes down to offering an environment that makes our patrons, audience and staff a bit more comfortable. I have um, to say, Katie Jo, I, I don't really have a problem with that. I, if if, if uh, venues like that are going to insist on this, I'm happy to know about it because then I don't. I, I won't go there. It's perfect. That's what that's what I was thinking. You're not going to want to go somewhere, are you, that, that are going to, you know, hate vac unvaccinated people and not want them in. You know, you're not just not want to go, going to want to go there. Um, but on the other hand, we do have um, establishments that, that, that are, are really happy about this, obviously. So we've got the yoga centre there, Prana Shanti is uh, scrapping the vaccine passport system. The director, Devinda, said she lost some customers when the system was introduced last fall and she hopes they'll come back. And a Toronto resident, Dan Cronin, had said he, th he thinks it's time that for fewer public health measures. If you choose not to get vaccinated, you're taking your own risk. He's not too concerned about COVID-19 as he's been vaccinated and he's caught the virus before. So it's a mixed bag and it is going to be a case of you, you will have to find out where you know, is going to be right for you. You know, it's going to, it's going to cause division, unfortunately. Um, now, interestingly, Edmonton wants to keep the mask mandates, but Alberta has announced once introduced as the bill um, and passed it, it would be in the position to overrule Edmonton's mask bylaws. Uh, Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, said a patchwork of public health policy will only uh, feed confusion and division in the province. It's it's going to it's going to be like that anyway, really. If 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 businesses if it's up to them what they want to do anyway, um, so we're seeing the restrictions and the mandates being dropped all over Canada though. Uh, but it's yeah, it's up to individual businesses whether they want to enforce it or not. Um, all I know is that you know that my family member who's out there has said to me, you know, it's it's going to be a, a take time to know exactly where where you can go now and where you're going to be welcome. Um, but unfortunately. Trudeau and the federal government are still um, requesting vaccine passports for any travel. So Canadians in their own country are prisoners still. Um, so the next slide we have there is the Justice Centre. And they're on it. The Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms has filed a legal application in federal court for judicial review of federal mandates which prevent Canadians who are not fully vaccinated from travelling by air. The Honourable Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada, is being perverted from fully participating in his political role. As the leader of the fifth largest political party in Canada in 2021, he flew more than 79,000 kilometres for work purposes, partaking in various political, intellectual and charitable um, activities in all regions of the country. Like other unvaccinated Canadians, he can't carry out his work, visit sick 
loved ones, visit friends and family, go on holiday, like everybody else that's, um, you know, vaccinated, all the citizens, they can just carry on as normal. Um, in the opinion of the Justice Centre, this is discriminatory and is a clear violation of the constitutional uh, protected rights of Canadians. So now we have poor Tamara Litch, um, one of the organisers of the Freedom uh, Convoy, who is being held in prison and denied bail. Uh, she had her second hearing last week. She was in handcuffs and her feet were in shackles. A UCP candidate, Brian Jean, said in 10 years of criminal law, including doing bail hearings for serious violent offences, he can't remember an accused ever appearing at a bail hearing in shackles. Her charges, mischief and interfering with the law use, uh, the lawful use and operation of property, both of which obviously are part of the course when it comes to peacefully protesting. The judge at her first hearing said, there is a substantial risk you will continue these actions and you will not abide by, my or by an order. Your recent history in our city satisfies, satisfies me that your detention is necessary for the safety and protection of the public. Can you believe those words? Yes. If convicted, Tamara faces up to 10 years in prison. It's absolutely outrageous. Why her and not there, 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 were, there was a whole group of organisers. She's simply a mother who has decided to stand up for her children's future, like many people watching this show. Um, if the federal government in Canada can do this, they can actually do anything. Um, I must mention, obviously, as well, that Pat King is still in prison and needs over $100,000 to apply for bail, uh, bail review. They have set up a a free Pat King fund and are asking for financial help. They have also been advised through legal counsel that any donations can be secured in trust and bank accounts will not run the risk of being frozen. So that's good to know. Trudeau is actually, as you said, visiting the UK today. He's extremely excited to be visiting the leaders of the UK, Latvia, Germany and Poland to talk about how we further support Ukraine push back against Russia and tackle the idea that we need to defend democracies being better against, uh, democracies better against misinformation and disinformation that's been a part of this war in Ukraine since well before it started. Oh, and of course, to discuss climate change. I think we've got a little video there. Good afternoon, Prime Minister Kelly Batello, CHCH News. What is the goal for your trip to Europe this weekend? What's on the table? I think one of the things that we've seen that has been incredibly strong in the response uh, to uh, the Russian aggression, continued Russian aggression in Ukraine, uh, has been not just the resilience of the Ukrainian people and their courage, but the strong, seamless, coordinated response by all of our allies. Uh, over the coming, over the past weeks, uh, we have been working together and coordinating together and the opportunity to sit down with key leaders in Europe and talk about how we further support Ukraine, how we further uh, push back against Russia and how we tackle the idea that we need to defend democracies uh, better uh, against the kind of misinformation and disinformation that has been part of this, uh, this uh, war in Ukraine uh, since well before it ever started. Um, at the same time as, of course, we're going to be talking about the things that we're working on together, whether it's economic recovery, uh, inclusive economic growth, uh, or uh, the fight against climate change. Lots to do uh, this week with allies in Europe, and I'm looking forward to it. 
I mean, misinformation is literally anything that questions or goes against their narrative and agenda. I mean, this programme, UK Column News, is terrible for it. <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, there was a great reply on Twitter, though, from Brett Wilson, showing how unbelievable the Canadian legal system is by comparing Tamara Litch uh, with Robin Walker, a real criminal there, as you can see, um, convicted murder, murderer. While out on parole, he was convicted of sexual assault. And then you can see what Tamara's done. Uh, she's not murdered or sexually assaulted anyone. Her only crime was to protest against Trudeau. Yet she is being denied bail. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and then we're going to move on to Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, who, by the way, is on the board of trustees for the World Economic Forum. Uh, attended a, a stand with the Ukraine rally last Monday. So the next slide shows in the photograph, she is holding a red and black scarf, promoting a far right Ukrainian nationalist movement linked to neo-Nazis and extremism. These posts were deleted without any comment or acknowledgement as to why. She reposted the same message just hours later, but with a new photo where the scarf had been removed. Now, the red and black flag has historically represented the Bandera movement in Ukraine. Stepan Bandera was a nationalist Ukrainian politician during the Second World War, who is accused of war crimes. You may be thinking, maybe she didn't know. And she genuinely was just holding it just because someone gave it to her and she was posing for the photo. Well, Chrystia Freeland describes herself as a Ukrainian Canadian. She is fluent in the Ukrainian language and her grandfather was a Nazi collaborator in Ukraine. He was the chief editor of a Nazi propaganda newspaper during World War II. Um, I think we can safely say she knew exactly what she was holding. Um, we have a huge double standard here going on at the moment with, with Trudeau, Freeland and the Liberals. Trudeau infamously accused a Conservative MP of Jewish heritage of standing with people who wave swastikas. They smeared the whole group. This was during the uh, the, the, the convoy. Um, they, he smeared the whole group um, by one flag spotted near the protest. Interestingly, no one can find that person that was holding that, that swastika, swastika flag anywhere. And Freeland isn't near a flag, she's holding the scarf, <laughs> you know. And also when Putin announced his invasion into Ukraine, his justification in part was to denazify the country. She's literally playing into Putin's hand with that photo, if you ask me. Um, and yes, slide number 14, I think it is. I'm going to finish the segment on a positive vibe. Uh, the protests for freedom are still going throughout Canada. The Canadian people are incredible, absolutely incredible. There was a huge freedom march in Calgary yesterday, a massive rally um, last week in Monrova. Uh, in Ottawa, there was a protest on Saturday outside the ODCD prison for those being illegally imprisoned there without bail. And yesterday, the Ottawa freedom chain stretched far beyond the eye can see. Um, I think I've got a, a picture there as well. So they, they've just been, they're just incredible. They're, they're just tireless. They are not stopping. Um, and we also have today America's convoy. They're smashing it in America. 
this weekend and today. Yesterday, the Freedom Convoy departed from Maryland to convoy around the DC metropolitan area. The group took two loops around the Beltway, a 64-mile highway surrounding the capital city, leaving traffic around the capital at a standstill by 3 p.m. And the Mail Online has some incredible photos of, of, that, of that incredible convoy in, uh, in America. So there you go. Brilliant, Look thank you that. very Amazing. much. Amazing. It's yes. really good to see. We'd say to anybody watching from Canada, well done, keep it going, and uh, we will continue to report on the information we get. Uh, David, uh, some news on Sage then. More good news following on from Katie's good news from Canada. Uh, good news from Britain. Sage stands down, signifying an end of the COVID pandemic in the UK, putting an end to COVID, it would seem. Um, so uh, it, they do recognise the government scientific advisory group has faced criticism for modelling, which has been repeatedly shown to be wrong. Yes, thanks for noticing uh, the Telegraph. Uh, now, next we've got actually go back to Canada here because we've got a little video, uh, a short extract from a video uh, from a pathologist called Dr. Roger uh, Hodkinson uh, from Canada. And uh, he outlines the nature of the problem with COVID, which we must not forget. I'm Dr. Roger Hodkinson, a freedom-loving pathologist from Canada. I'm a fellow of the American College of Pathologists and the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. My medical degrees are from Cambridge University in the UK, and I've held a number of significant positions, including being an assistant professor at the University of Alberta, President of the Association of Laboratory Physicians of Alberta, Chairman of the Canadian Examination Board in Pathology, CEO of a large community laboratory, and currently I'm the Chairman of an American biotechnology company involved in DNA sequencing. I have a number of important messages for you resulting from this unprecedented horror show, the worst in medical history. I am viscerally outraged at this totally unnecessary, grotesque human tragedy. So my first message is this, believe nothing you are being told. It's all been a pack of lies from start to finish, pure propaganda. This is nothing more than a bad seasonal flu with slightly increased risk for older people with comorbidities. My second message is that more than anything, this is a pandemic of fear. Fear that was intentionally driven by two major factors, the notorious PCR test and the viciously effective silencing of any counter-narrative. The PCR test creates over 95% false positives in perfectly well people and drives the graphs in the morning paper where these false positives are called cases. They are no such thing. You are being lied to. The second driver of fear is the brutal silencing of the truth from the three sources you would normally rely upon to form your own independent judgment, politicians, the media, and physicians, particularly MDs, who by their cowardly silence have decided to put income ahead of ethics, the ethics we physicians are supposed to hold dear, first do no harm and inform consent. And we'll have more from that, uh, uh, that doctor in extra time. Uh, that, uh, that short talk goes on and makes more very vital and powerful points. Uh, we've also got here um, 
uh, a, a, an article from The Telegraph reporting at long last on the people harmed by the vaccine. Uh, they, they write here almost a thousand people uh, seek compensation over severe dis disability from COVID vaccine. Government scheme provides payments of up to £120,000 to anyone who suffers significant harm as a result of a jab. Significant harm is not correct. Uh, the actual correct is 50% disability. These are very profound, life-changing um, effects before you even qualify for any compensation. But uh, if, ever, if all of these are granted, uh, it will cost the government uh, more than £110 million. Um, I've got another bit of video coming up uh, from uh, a, this time a UK-based uh, journalist, uh, former uh, ITV and Sky News boss Mark Sharman. Uh, he gave an interview to the White Rose uh, website and we have a small clip of him speaking at a public event and uh, not attended by the mainstream media uh, but which was talking with experts about Covid vaccine uh, damage and vaccine adverse reactions. And I, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed and I would apologise to everybody about the way the media have behaved over all this. I was the boss of Sky News at one time and ITV and I've sat at home um, angry and frustrated at the way they're behaving but it can't be accidental mm. you know we have tried I'm, I'm now working with a group of journalists and we're trying really hard to break the mold and, and we're writing online and elsewhere we cannot get these stories into the mainstream media now there are many reasons but it is being controlled and it's naive to think it's not I don't know you know there are two your profession the medical profession and my trade I don't call out a profession, because there don't be any qualifications. But both of us should be ashamed of the, of the general mix. Where are everybody else? They, I'm talk, Max is one of the people I've spoken to in the past, but I'm now talking to victims every day, and it's horrific. Mm -hmm. And the doctors know that they're seeing more examples in the hospitals, and they're not speaking up. Mm -hmm. And the media are not speaking up. So you have to ask why. It isn't all about a cock-up, believe me. It cannot be. Uh, so again, re reflecting once again, this has been um, full of lies, full of deception, and the, the medical profession, or the most of it, um, the and journalism profession, or most of it, and the political profession, uh, or al almost all of it, uh, have been asleep at the wheel, have been encouraging um, fear, and have been completely callous and disregarding uh, towards the real harm that has been caused to so many people. Um, now, uh, some more sort of specific information on COVID falls here. We've got um, a remarkable um, uh, bit of information put out from uh, Jackson River Pediatrics, it's a, a Twitter account. It says, I took this photo at a pediatrician's office this morning. And the, the, there's a sign posted to the window and it says, student athletes, uh, sports physicals are being done primarily to make sure you're not at high risk for sudden cardiac death on the playing field. COVID vaccination affects your risk. In response to worldwide experience in vaccine adverse event monitoring, we are adopting a more precautionary sports physical sign-off policy. If you've received doses of any COVID shot, you will not be, we will not be able to clear you to compete in sports. 
without performing lab work and possibly an electrocardiogram to rule out potential heart damage. That's for young people wanting to play sport. That alone. Um, compare that to, contrast that with, um, the situation in England, NHS offering COVID jabs at schools to help improve vaccine rates in young people, reports Leicestershire Live. 200,000 young people between 12 and 15 are still unvaccinated. So the NHS are going into 300 schools to make that change. So this is, again, callous disregard to the harm that they're likely to cause. Um, now we go back to the States here and uh, we've got a, a doctor speaking out uh, from, it's called the Forgotten Side of Medicine. It's a blog. Uh, he writes, a Midwestern doctor, like so many, unable to put his own name for fear of the retribution that would follow. So he's, he's documenting what he is specifically seeing in adverse reactions. And this is a long article, it's about a 50 page long article, it goes into huge amounts of detail, but it covers strokes, blood clots, hemorrhages, heart conditions, sudden death, anaphylaxis, neurological conditions, psychiatric, autoimmunity, chronic fatigue, immune suppression, cancer, menstrual irregularities, miscarriages, birth defects. And he goes through all of this in great detail and it comes back to his personal experience. And he writes, um, prior to um, COVID-19, I personally admitted two people to hospital for adverse reactions to vaccinations, something my co-workers told me was extraordinarily rare to ever come across even once. Comparatively with COVID vaccines, I presently know of the following. Critical injuries, 41. Severe injuries, 39. Significant reactions, 32. It doesn't even count the moderate ones. Uh, typically, when a drug has between 100 and between 10 and 100 critical injuries reported to the FDA, they strongly look at pulling it from the market. And he's saying that uh, he's feeling that this is not getting the uh, safety attention it deserves. Uh, and he reports that he knows every single one of the, of the cases that he's describing in this blog. Um, a very important piece. Um, now, again, back to the UK, contrast that with medics concerned that the vulnerable child low vaccine rate now, here we've got a little, a little lad called Sam, and it says Sam's mum, Sally, a doctor, says she trusts the processes of the NHS, and vaccinations have been around for a long time. Well, not these ones, but she seems not to know about that. Um, doctors have expressed concern over a low number of 5 to 11-year-olds classed as vulnerable or living with a vulnerable persons, persons getting vaccinated. So again, still pushing on the vulnerable um, the vaccine, despite the harm that is now well recognised, well documented, including autopsies, is doing a lot of harm. But still, the medical profession in this country and the and the media in this country are pushing the same line. And we uh, go on here to Scotland. Uh, COVID Scotland, vulnerable Scots offered second booster vaccine. That's vaccine shot number four from Monday. So we're running out more vaccines. Now, every time we've done this in the past, there's been a spike in death rates and we will see it again. It's happened every single time. I don't expect this one will be any different. The Scottish government know about this, but they don't seem to care. Uh, on the subject of not caring, I, I, that takes us to the MHRA. MHRA are not happy that they've been getting lots of FOI um, requests and uh, they've decided they're not going to answer them. Uh, they, they report one of the early FOI requests contained a screenshot 
of the phrase from the UK Column News website, indicating the FOI requests were part of a targeted campaign. And they've decided because um, that, that's part of a targeted campaign, they don't have to answer the questions at all. Now, the David, question, David. remember, was... So yes, David, Brian, sorry. David, if I could just come in there and, and just to push this point, uh, we've got a very simple question being asked to the MHRA. Where is the quantitative risk assessment into the vaccine adverse reactions and deaths? Where is their investigation? One person has asked this, they don't want to reply. Several people have asked it, they don't want to reply. When the UK column points this out to the wider public, and a lot of people ask the question, then all, uh, all of a sudden it's it's sort of vexatious. And, and branded a campaign. And brand, branded a campaign. Uh, meanwhile, as we're going to hear on Wednesday, it appears that the MHRA has now taken their board meetings off the uh, YouTube channel. So SAGE has been stood down. I think the MHRA is now running for cover. Why? Because they know perfectly well these vaccines have damaged thousands and thousands of people. And I've got uh, similar questions with the MHRA, unanswered, acknowledged but unanswered uh, for getting on for a year now. Uh, quite, quite shocking uh, lack of response. Looking again for risk assessment data, quantitative risk assessment. This they can't provide. Um, we go now to um, Australia or rather to an Australian, uh, the, the sad death of Shane Warne, with a, which was announced this week. Now, um, uh, back in 2021, uh, he was interviewed in, when he was in London, uh, looking at the contrast between Britain and the very tight restrictions in Australia. And he said, get vaccinated and learn to live with it. Um, and he says, it's a matter of getting your double vax and getting on with living with, with COVID. So he obviously did that. Uh, and uh, then this uh, this last few days, uh, we've heard very sad news um, that this I mean, apparently extremely fit, uh, obviously former former sportsman, uh, died of a massive heart attack, aged fifty two, whilst on holiday. Uh, so our, our sympathies to all of his uh, friends and family over his passing. Um, but for my personal comment, I would I would. Deeply hopeless in an autopsy, uh, with everyone who who passes under under these sorts of circumstances, because we need to understand what is happening and why there are so many heart conditions and exactly the role that the vaccine uh, is playing. Uh, some of the uh, special um, uh, uh, doctors for COVID ethics uh, transmissions uh, that have gone out through the UK column have included. Uh, details of, of autopsies and details of the causes of disease coming from uh, the vaccines. But we need this to be in the mainstream and we need uh, the uh, officials like the MHRA who are allegedly charged with looking after safety to actually engage with the subject. I can't see any evidence that they're doing so. Uh, yeah, that's right. So no, David. Um, uh, sorry, you're, you're sorry, jumping ahead sorry. there. So, so if we put uh, if we put this on from the BBC, I just wanted to to put, do a little addendum to that segment because uh, the BBC's article here: Shane Warne, Australian cricket legend, dies from natural causes, according to the police. So there was a post mortem done in Thailand where he passed away, um, and uh, they say he died of natural causes. Uh, the BBC in their article didn't mention heart attack at all. And I really just wanted to make the point that although the Daily Mail 
uh, have in a couple of articles now mentioned that is the cause of death. Uh, the BBC haven't. Um, so let's just move on to this uh, because I want to show this on screen as well. Uh, this is uh, the Real Science website, 748 athlete cardiac arrest, serious issues, 480 dead after COVID shot. Um, and uh, the recent changes, which include Shane Warne and obviously, uh, and Rod Marsh as well. Uh, and uh, well, you can see the other names on screen at the moment. And they have a, a graph on this page, uh, which shows uh, athletes uh, collapses and deaths uh, since 2021 or over 2021 and 2022. Uh, the red, uh, uh, section of the graph is is the people that have passed away um, of that lot. But uh, the question that they ask, and I think it is absolutely valid, and it's a question that uh, we're going to ask again today in echoing this, where are the fact checkers? So readers are writing to us asking for comparisons from previous years. Some say that without that, these results mean nothing. That's not true, because if we had seen this in previous years, it would have been well known and others would have documented it. Uh, we're starting to work on this. It's a lot of work. But the question they're asking is, where are the fact checkers? Where is the mainstream media? Some have piles of money from Bill Gates. Why are they not proving us wrong by piling on uh, and showing the documented uh, athlete deaths from 2019, 2018, 2017, and the previous decade? Uh, they are nowhere to be found because this number of athletes deaths is abnormal and they know it. Uh, they have money from people who don't want journalists poking around. That's why they don't try to thoroughly fact check these reports or show previous year numbers. So, uh, you know, some people may uh, criticize uh, the, the, the words used there, but nonetheless, I'm gonna echo it and say, where are the fact checkers? Come on, full fact. Uh, let's get the evidence out in front of everybody about what the actual situation is here, uh, because it yeah. certainly seems like uh, this is a pretty obscene increase in the number of uh, deaths and serious injuries. Uh, amongst very fit sports people. Yeah, so that points right where are the fact checkers, but also for people in our audience who say, but what can we do? This is exactly the sort of thing that many of you can do, simple research to help locate proper statistics that are needed. So you're seeing a particular organization take a lead. How can you, a viewer or a listener, help? You can research and prompt them by providing them with information so that they can bring in probably more expertise uh, to get the real data out. But if you want to do something, help the organizations trying to take the lid off what's actually happening. Uh, David, it, uh, we're very late, but uh, let's put this one on. Uh, not demonstrably justified. High Court upholds challenged police and New Zealand DF vaccination mandates termination suspended. This one we go from uh, Australia to New Zealand and some more good news. Uh, so the High Court has basically ruled that the uh, the, the uh, legislation which uh, was forcing um, people in the police and defence staff uh, of, of the country to either be vaccinated or to lose their job uh, was um, unconstitutional against the Bill of Rights, um, uh, unjustified and illegal, unlawful. So that's been struck down. So that's another another blow for freedom, belated but uh, real. Yes. That's good. Yep. Okay. Uh, Katie Joe, let's bring you back on and uh, cover fluoridation here because there is uh, some legislation on the cards with respect to uh, fluoridation in Britain's water supply. 
There is indeed. Thank you, Mike. In August uh, 2021, the UK Parliament decided to post a rapid response to water fluoridation and dental health. It said that although dental health has improved over all in England in recent decades, this masks substantial inequalities. So the next slide there just shows some of the reasons as to why they want to roll this out. Um, one of those there, which says research shows that water fluoridation is a safe and effective public health intervention. Well, we've heard those words before, haven't we? Uh, I mean, <laughs> do, they think, Joe, do, they, do, do they think that this is going to make up for the fact that nobody could get an NHS dentist anymore? Is this, is this going to actually help? <laughs> well, well, and of course, the ch children are all consuming uh, drinks which are immensely damaging to their teeth and, and of course governments are helping don't worry about that they, they still still let them drink coca-cola out of a bottle but you know just we'll just add fluoride to the water and even though they probably don't drink it but yeah no so the next so the next slide uh, there says um the, the bit that's really important which is if successful the former secretary of state of for health and social care has expressed an intention to roll out water fluoridation nationwide the provisions for doing so are outlined in the Health and Care Bill 2021-2022. The intention is uh, for changes to be placed in place by April 2022. So why should we be bothered about this? Well, did you know that in 2013, the UK let a British company export nerve gas chemicals to Syria? What were these chemicals? Potassium fluoride and sodium fluoride. As you can see in the article there from The Independent, Professor Alistair Hay said, when you're making a nerve agent, you attach a fluoride element and that's what gives, the, gives it its toxic properties. The same toxic chemicals that are routinely added to water supplies around the world. In America, they even have bottled water called nursery water that is enriched with sodium fluoride. Sodium fluoride is also touted by China's exporters as a multi-purpose chemical. Uses um, include um, as a flux in the aluminium smelting by fused salt e electrolysis, an opalizer in the manufacture of enamel, an opacifier and, and auxiliary solvent of glass and enamel, an incesticide for crops, the list goes on and on. Fluoride is a highly toxic compound, a key ingredient in some pesticides and fumigants, a major industrial air pollutant, and is the cause of devastating bone disease that impacts millions of people around the world. Fluoride is not a nutri nutrient, and many children now exceed the recommended daily fluoride intake from toothpaste alone. I would like to add here that my children have never had uh, toothpaste that contains fluoride, and none of them, my eldest being 18, have ever had a filling or toothache. And 97% of Western Europe has rejected water fluoridation. Um, according to the Fluoride Action Network, as of January 2022, a total of 83 studies have been have investigated the relationship between fluoride and human intelligence. Of these investigations, 74 have found that elevated fluoride exposure is associated to reduced IQ in humans, and over 60 animal studies found that it impairs the learning and or memory capacity of animals. Drinking any amount of fluoride is dangerous to your health and has never been proven to prevent tooth decay. Um, it can, however, cause dental fluorosis and cause teeth to become mottled and discoloured. The federal agencies, health, oh, sorry, carry on. Uh, if I can just add to that, the, the mottling of teeth in uh, between 1980, uh, sorry, 1987 and 1989, uh, there was a fluoridation uh, process for children's teeth in the Netherlands. 
And uh, I know children that went through that process and that's indeed what they ended up with, which is uh, white, uh, strange white patches on their teeth. And that was a result of damage from the fluoridization process. That's right. And the, the health uh, federal health agencies have known the serious damage that fluoride has on our health for years, but they have kept it a secret. In the words of Dr. Uh, Robert Carton, former scientist for the EPA, fluoridation is the greatest case of scientific fraud of this century, if not of all time. And in his book, Fluoride, the Aging Factor, Dr. Dean Burke, former head of the National Cancer Institute's cell chemistry section, fluoride causes more human cancer and causes it faster than any other chemical. A 2005 Harvard School of Dental Health study found that fluoride in tap water directly contributes to osteosarcoma, that's bone cancer, in young boys. Interestingly, Harvard professor Chester Douglas downplayed the connection, stating that there was no relationship. However, Douglas was investigated for scientific misconduct when, wait for it, they discovered he was in fact the editor-in-chief of the Colgate Oral Health Report. As we know, Colgate make fluoridated uh, toothpaste. So it causes cancer, actually ruins your teeth and lowers your IQ. So what else? Well, fluoride prevents um, iodine absorption. Iodine is an essential mineral used by the thyroid. Iodine deficiency causes brain disorder, miscarriages and goiter, among many other diseases. And the pineal gland, our third eye, is responsible for the synthesis and secretion of melatonin, which affects our sleep patterns. It regulates the onset of puberty in females and helps to protect the body from cell damage caused by free radicals. The buildup of fluoride in the pineal gland is in very high concentration, higher than anywhere else in the body. After accumulating, they form crystals, creating a hard shell called calcification. Our third eye, our pineal gland, is also connected to clarity, concentration, imagination, intuition, spiritual perception and universal connection. It is no coincidence, if you ask me, that they want us all dosed up on this highly toxic chemical. And it's the same old story, actually, you will find time and time again. Fluoride is actually a cash cow for industries that previously had to dispose of this toxic waste. In an article by Frank Zelko, he says, Many are surprised to learn that unlike the pharmaceutical grade toothpaste in their, uh, fluoride in their toothpaste, the fluoride in their water is an untreated industrial waste product, one that contains trace elements of arsenic and lead. Without the phosphate industry's effluent, water fluoridation would be prohibitively expensive. And without fluoridation, the phosphate industry would be stuck with an expensive waste disposal problem. It is incredibly important that as many people as possible research the extremely serious intention from the UK government to roll out water fluoridation nationwide and to sign the petition to stop this toxic substance uh, being added to our tap water here in the UK. The amazing Save Our Rights have a template you can use to send to your MP. Um, and they, they're, they're amazing. You just go onto their Save Our Rights, uh, Rights website. Uh, I've got a slide there as well that shows um, exactly uh, the, the, the website, I think. Have you got it there? Um, and we have until Wednesday to do this. Yeah. So it's really, really important as many people sign this. Yes. OK, brilliant. Thank you very much. I think we're out of time. I'm aren't afraid we, so? we are, yes. <laughs> Thank I, I don't, you. I, I, 
I know, David, you had something that you wanted to, to cover. Uh, can you do it in, in one it, minute? It's, it's okay. We, we'll, no, we'll cover it in extra time. If we could go to the last of the last slides just to finish. Yes. Okay. Um, what, and what, what this summarises where, summarises where we are today with Batman and uh, one of Batman's opponents here. And the opponent says, he say, he say, obediently saying, I hate anti-vaxxers. And Batman smacks him across the face. And he says, Russians, you hate Russians now. <laughs> and I thought that was exactly where we're at. I don't think that's an opponent, David. That's Robin he's hitting there. <laughs> well, maybe so. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay, excellent. Well, we're, we're out of time, unfortunately. We need to end. We will be doing an extra time. We're going to say a very big thank you to our audience. And again, thank you very much to the people who've recently made some very generous donations. Um, it is brilliant. We can only do this with your financial support. And also, we know that we're going to need reserves to fight the battle that's going to come against us with the online harms bill because be under no illusion the online harms bill is designed to shut down channels like the UK column and anybody else who dares run a website that challenges the government's objective. So uh, big thank you for that. Indeed. We'll end there. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time on, uh, where are we? Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday. Thank you, Mike. And uh, stay tuned if you're going to be joining us for extra time. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.